Thank you, Pastor. Today's reading is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. In your Bible, it's on page 1018. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing, that, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The word of the Lord. You know, my old, my old church in Philadelphia, they, they did this thing every year where the men and the women go, out, go on separate retreats. And this is the first time we've ever done this. And, wow, I really don't like it. <laughs> I don't like it. Well, okay, I, I love that the women get to go and, and walk together. But, but I love, I hate not having my wife at home. <laughs> and, um, and uh, but... But anyway, hey, we, we all sacrifice for each other just as Jesus sacrificed for us. And so, you know, we could take the bullet one day so that the sisters can be especially blessed. Um, but, yeah, what a difference it makes, isn't it? You know, um, and I'm sure the ladies will feel, feel, feel the, uh, the, the absence of the brothers. I'm so thankful for the few sisters that are here. All right. So glad that you're here. But let, let's get into um, today's word. We are in a series on why can I trust the Bible? Why trust the Bible? How do you know that the Bible is from God? <laughs> That's what this series is about. And in, this is part three. Part one, I basically talked about how you can't just look at your life and have certain experiences and certain feelings and intuitions, and you think those experiences can shape and know and how you know what's right and what's wrong. You, that's not enough. That you need a word you need the fundamental meaning of your life and experiences, and we need a word which is above all other words, not just ideologies and opinions and cultures, but really God's word, which is above every word. That's part, that was the first message. Last week, I, I went just straight forward to tell you that the Bible is a divine book, that it was inspired, that God inspired certain people and he directed them to write only what he wanted. That essentially, God, in one sense, yes, human beings wrote it, but truly God authored it. It was inspired by him. It's inerrant. And that actually this is not an obstacle to having a real relationship with God, but it's actually a necessary precondition. That if you do not have an infallible scripture, you'll just end up with the God that you just made up on yourself. It's a God that says, as soon as anything offends you out of the Bible, then you just say, well, that, that, that's just wrong, and then you can make up the God that you want. That's a serious problem. And a lot of people today don't understand that as long as you don't have a scripture which is from God above you, then you're just on your own, and you're just making up the God that you want, or you're just your own God, and essentially all of life is on you, and that's just another thing we're lost. Right? 
Today we're going to talk about um, the importance that the Bible is not a myth. And that the Bible is not merely talking about rights and wrong, what is right and what's wrong. It's not morality, but actually it is history. Now, not, every book in the Bible is not about history. I mean, there are some portions of the Bible that's poetry. It's really about prayers. Um, it's, it's wisdom. So all the, Bible, all the Bible isn't history. But actually, the, the, the overall Bible is a redemptive history. And it's incredibly important that it is history. It happened. And um, that this is one of the things that sets the Bible apart from pretty much most all the other books of religion and different claims about God and the other ideologies of the world. Because the fact that it happened, it is a historical book of God entering into a relationship with people and offering a deep personal relationship with you and with me and with all the nations of the world. And so that's what I'm going to get into today and why it's important that it's history and that you can know that it is history. So um, in three parts, as I usually do, part one, history versus myth and morality, right? History versus myth and morality. Part two, the overall goal of the Bible is covenant relationship. This is often missed by lots of people that the real core goal of the Bible is to draw us into a covenant relationship with God. And in part three, that the, that the Bible offers a, a, a proclamation that redemption has been accomplished and it can be applied to us today. Redemption accomplished, redemption applied. That's what the Bible is proclaiming, right? So let's go to part one, history versus myth and morality. Let's go into our, 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 our text 2 Peter, and 2 Peter, this is from Peter. <laughs> I hope you know who Peter is. He's one of uh, the key original disciples of Jesus. He's the most famous one. He is there, he's one of the key leaders. And this is the claim that he makes. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses. This is very important. We're eyewitnesses. So right away, he's making an important claim. We saw this. <laughs> this happened. I was there. And in contrast, and this is, if you think this is uh, just uh, going on today, we, you know, we, we believe that we live in a very scientific and modern age. And then that means we think that there is a clear difference between the things that we can verify through our investigation. And that's why we go, okay, Hey, can you just take that medication? Why do we know you? We, we believe and trust you can take a certain medications because it was verified and tested through science. But we're very skeptical about all these other claims, particularly about God and truth, because we're not sure if they were made up. They were legends. They were myths. And so we somehow tend to think that, you know, because we figured out science, we're the only people that were ever skeptical about myths, but all these ancient people, they were, they were just a bunch of rubes, they're too primitive, and they can't tell the difference. I mean, come on. Do you think they were really that foolish, that they can't tell the difference between a truth claim and merely a myth? Right here, Peter's saying, no, lots of other people are peddling to you cleverly devised myths. Not true stories. Just mere stories that, that make you feel good or they're just trying to part you from your money or trying to manipulate you and control you 
just as, well, just as people do today. This is a really deeply human, sinful thing that's just going on all the time. But the first thing that Peter says is, I was there. And actually, the, the, the portion he's talking about, it is a portion in the Gospels called the Transfiguration, when Jesus takes three disciples up to a mountain, and God actually speaks and says, this is my beloved son. And Peter says, oh, there were three guys there, and I'm one of them. <laughs> I heard this. I was there. I saw it happen. It was a crazy thing, right? And so that's the portion he is talking about. But this isn't um, an unusual thing in the scriptures. The, the, the argument that's being these claimed is, to, is constantly to tell you it happened and you should believe it. And the people that were witnesses, there were eyewitnesses that were there, they make a very serious claim and you should consider their claims. So, just to give you another couple places in the Bible, um, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know where it is in the, in the pew, pew Bibles. 1 Corinthians 15, so this is a very important place in the scripture, and this is actually an even more crucial place of eyewitness claim, because it's about the resurrection of Christ. This is the, the, the central historical event that makes all the difference in the world, and then, and then throughout the, um, the chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul basically says, like, if this didn't happen, all you Christians are completely, we're, we Christians were the most pathetic people, so just forget about all this stuff. It had to have happened. But then here, listen to the claim he makes. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance, of first importance, of extreme top, top importance, what I also received that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. All of this is history. And it happened according to the way the Bible said it was going to happen. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, by the way, that's his other name, right? Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, so some have fallen asleep, some of them died. Right? Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. That's the claim. Now, most scholars think that First Corinthians, so uh, that Second Peter is written relatively late. And by late, we're talking like maybe like 70 or 80. 80 A.D. And the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection probably happened roughly around 30. Most people think Jesus was probably in his early 30s. And, you know, give or take a few years, some people think he was born a little bit before. He wasn't actually born on A.D. 0, okay? Uh, some people think it was a few years before that. Some argue a few years after that. And so the events of the crucifixion are just probably somewhere around 30. Um, Peter wrote this thing, you know, like maybe, maybe 40 or so. 40, maybe 50 years after the events of the death and resurrection of Christ. So that's, that's, you know, that, that's the historical argument. Nobody knows exactly for sure. Some people think it's earlier than that. So that seems like a long time, right? But 1 Corinthians, this is written maybe 20, 30 years, 50, 50s, maybe the late 50, 80, maybe early 60. This, that's not a long time. And he makes this claim. Some of these people are still alive. There are 500 of them that were there. They saw the risen Jesus. They weren't there just for the crucifixion. They saw the Jesus that was crucified, the risen Jesus. 
And you can go talk to them now. They're still alive. And that is a tremendously important claim because most of the other so-called holy scriptures in lots of other religions, they're, they're, they're not sure. If you, they're trying to figure out when it was written. It was written maybe way after it was happened or that the text may have been corrupted. You're never quite sure. Or they were handled from oral portions. And then, but then actually when you look at it, it doesn't actually quite matter whether it actually happened or not because just to take, say, Buddha, for example. Buddha is a story about an actual man. He's a historical figure. But whether he was a historical figure or whether he is a parable actually doesn't quite matter according to Buddhist teaching because Buddhist teaching is a certain philosophy about the world and how human beings should deal with the deep problems of the world. It's actually a certain... Um, it's actually a certain diagnosis of the way the world is and about how to deal with suffering. And really, whether Buddha actually existed or there was a history, it actually doesn't matter. A lot of, a lot of the world's religions is based on a myth or a legend of a historic figure that gives us a moral a moral diagnosis of the world and whether the thing, the claim of the person, of the founder or something, it actually, he's an actual historic figure or happened or not, it doesn't actually make a difference in the fundamental meaning of the religion. But the Bible is quite different. We are called to come and believe in a very specific figure and that you can have a relationship with this person and he did something for us and it was very important that it happened through this thing called the death and the resurrection. And if the resurrection did not happen, then all this stuff is completely a waste of time. And I'm going to tell you right now, if the resurrection didn't happen, this is just complete nonsense. Christianity is just another version of a cleverly devised myth. But that is not the claim of the Bible at all. And it's very important that the Bible wasn't written hundreds and hundreds of years after these fundamental events. The most crucial event that all of Christianity hangs upon, actually these writings are right within a 20, 30 year time period. And, and the claim is there's the eyewitnesses you can check out. And that's incredibly important. So let me just, just let me try to bring this home. If there was a claim about something that happened, say, in the 1980s or the 1990s, and some people said this happened, and some people say it happened this way, and some people say, oh, it did not happen, or it did happen a different way. You know that that is, you can't just make up a lie about something that happened in the 1980s or the 1990s, 20 or 30-something years ago. You know why? Because people can show up and counteract that claim for the simple things, I was there. If you want to make up a lie about an event, you know what? You need to wait till all the people that were there are dead. <laughs> They're all dead, and they can't show up and, and give you credible evidence. They can say, I was there. And you can, you can look at the person and say, is this person a liar? Is this person trying to pull a fast one on me? Do they have some kind of other agenda? They're trying to cheat me. They're trying to cheat me. They're trying to get money out of me. They're trying to manipulate me. And so... Credible eyewitnesses are an unbelievably important part of history. So much of history is built upon that. How do you know that Abraham Lincoln was shot by a guy named John Wilkes Booth? How do you know this? We believe this to be fact. How do you know that John F. Kennedy was shot in 1963? Why? Because there's TV footage of it. Because people were there, and all the people were there, and then 
that all the people that reported this thing, they were believable. And then this gets handed down. And Paul is saying it's being handed down and you can go trust us. Hmm. Let me go show, give you one other. So just to, if you want more. If you go to Luke chapter 1, very important. So the Gospel of Luke is the longest of the four Gospels, the, the, the four books that talk about the ministry of Jesus Christ. And this is how it begins. So Luke is one of, he's in the group of Paul. Luke knew Paul, and he walked in his mysteries, and so Luke is one of the early authorized messengers about the gospel, and that's the authorized met people who have the truth, and they're called the apostles. That's what an apostle is. He's an authorized messenger. And here's how he puts it. Luke chapter 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, there's that word again, eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. He's actually writing to somebody. That you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught that you have been taught. You can know this for sure. So I decided to compile all this together. I went and talked to the most important people so I could put together an orderly account. So it was Luke that wrote this gospel, and then he wrote Acts, which is the most important book in the Bible about the way the early church started to unfurl. And so this is incredibly important that the Bible is based on eyewitnesses. Now, let me, make a, let me counter a couple things for that a lot of people today are trying to do to undermine the historical trustworthiness, the veracity of the scriptures, or even to just say that the Bible is a bunch of myths and lies. So the, 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 the popular version that's really going around the lie, I mean, this, this is just going, let me just tell you, for those of you guys who are especially um, uh, young, those of you who are like maybe just going off to college or maybe in your early 20s, and and then you're being shaken by the lies that, that, that hit the culture, especially by the so-called sophisticated people. I mean, the one that's popular today is a guy named Dan Brown. He wrote this thing called the Da Vinci Code. And I, I, I didn't really read the book, but I, um, I know the basic thesis. So what's happened is that people know it's a fiction. It's a piece of fiction, okay? And, and, but it basically goes around to say that Constantine, he, he, you know, he became the emperor in the 300s. And then, and then because of that, he used, he chose Christianity. And then what he did was he said that Jesus is true and the Bible is true. And then he went and then destroyed all the counter, all the counter um, writings against this teaching about Jesus. And so we can't really know what the, what's actually was true because the, there was a conspiracy of power and to, and since so he wanted to use the religion, and so now all this stuff has been corrupted, and you don't know if it's true or not. So that that is so people think, well, the book is fiction, but that stuff about how political people manipulated the religious texts—that well, that probably is true. A lot of people think that probably is true, and so now a lot of people think, well, that's what the, the church is—it's just a manipulative, it's a hand of politics. And the Bible, it's a corrupted book, handed, um, deal, um, um, corrupted by politics. A lot of people think this kind of thing. And um, let me tell you, if you just even just re read the Bible a little bit, that, that can't be true. <laughs> let, let me give you, uh, um, 
The, the argument that there's a, multiple arguments I can give you, but let me give you the one that I particularly like that I think just completely blows away the Dan, Dan Brown. One, right? Um, before Constantine arose, that Christianity was a constantly, it was just, just, just regular waves of persecution. You can actually go to um, Italy and find out uh, there's this thing called the catacombs. And Christians would flee to the catacombs because people would be murdered and slaughtered. So you've heard about this thing called thrown to the lion. And so I guess Christians are such a powerful people. <laughs> they were such a powerful people that they can just do this in the 100s and the 200s. Before Christianity arose to become the dominant religion of the empire, actually it was a despised religion and people had to die for it. And there were, there were all these other counter-arguments. And in fact, the sophisticated people of the empire would just say, this is some kind of disgusting Jewish sect. And they believe they're the one true God, and they're not tolerant like us because we know that we accept all the gods as long as they're advanced like we Romans, which is exactly what we, West, what we Western Americans like to do. Secular Americans like to say, we accept all the gods that of all the other religions until they offend us because they're not, they're not modern and advanced like us. And so the sophisticated, the sophisticated intellectuals of the, of the, fir, of the first, of the two, 100 and 200, these are the arguments that they used. And so you think that the Christians actually have the power to go do that? Of course not. They had to die for their faith. And how did they win the Roman Empire? They did it through sacrifice. They did it through mercy. They did it by offering answers to the deepest problems of life. That, 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 the, that, the, that all the Roman ideologies and all the other different religions, in other words, Christianity had to prove its power and its truth through, through cost, through suffering. Not because somebody powerful can just crush them down. Now, let me give you, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a figure a guy named Rodney Stark, and he wrote this book called The Rise of Christianity. In fact, he, he's written multiple books on this because these lies keep coming up in, in the scholarship and sometimes in the popular, Dan Brown's the popular, um, is a popular writer, but sometimes it actually comes up in ancient historical scholarship. And when he reads this stuff, it drives him kind of crazy because he studied this stuff too. And then he comes up and he's written multiple books and he, he argues, actually, if some people are cynical about Constantine, we can be cynical that Constantine, who knows if he was even actually a real Christian. Maybe he didn't necessarily choose Christianity and then impose it upon everybody through power, but probably because more and more people were being won to Christianity and he wanted to join the winning team. So that's, how, that's the conclusion that he comes to and he thinks that's a far stronger and plausible argument as to why Christianity won in the empire. I think that's true. And I think most reputable historians would come to that, such a, a very similar kind of conclusion. But let me give you a different argument, and this is one of my favorite arguments about, about this type of Dan Brown type argument. <laughs> um, it's a, it's, 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 I call this the Chuck Colson argument. And um, Chuck Colson, for those of you, you know, those of you guys who are maybe younger may not know who he is. Um, Chuck Colson, Charles Colson, he worked for President Richard Nixon. He was a legal counsel for the president. And he did dirty and illegal things for the president. And when it all came out in the Watergate scandal, and the whole pres the Nixon presidency was brought down by the Watergate scandal. I don't you understand that. We've had one president resign, and that's Richard Nixon. And careers were destroyed, 
including Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson did manipulative lies as one of the lawyers for the White House, and this guy went to jail. And while he was in prison, he started to read the Bible because his life was destroyed. And he started to come to a very interesting conclusion. He started reading Mere Christianity from C.S. Lewis. I mean, that, you know, Lewis has, reading Lewis has helped so many people come to the Lord. And he started reading the Bible. And he said, he, he can compare this. If this was actually some kind of conspiracy by these guys to tell the world a lie about Jesus, then they would need to be very, very dedicated, disciplined men. And they should be, and they would be able to handle every, all, the, because, the, because the pressure of the world would go against them and all the people who hate their message would attack them, would physically attack them, would, would verbally just mock them, and it would take a whole lot of, for these men to be able to deal with it. And so here he is. Here's a guy right in the, in the Nixon presidency. The whole country is coming down on top of the White House, and now there is a conspiracy in the White House to cover up crimes of the Nixon presidency, and he's at the center of it. And he said, I walk with these men. These are some of the smartest, most dedicated. They believed in the president. They believed in the Republican cause. These are, I mean... These are, they came out of the top universities. These are the most disciplined, smart men. And so we're, we're, Peter, the guy's a fisherman. He's a rough person. John's a fisherman. These are common men. And when the whole, when the whole country came down on top of our heads, I saw all these disciplined, super smart men, each one fall. The conspiracy fell apart. They all started, they all started singing. <laughs> they all started, uh, they, 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 they betrayed the conspiracy. But when this happened in early Christianity, not even just the early 12, but so many of the Christians, and then what happened, do you know that of, of the original disciples, all of them died? And they were all persecuted, and they all died, except, well, except for John, the author of the Gospel of John. They all died gruesome deaths under persecution. And when Colson saw that, he said, their claim about this person, Jesus, like 1 Peter chapter 1, where Peter says, I was there, where Paul says, you can go talk to these people. He said, you know, that, that is a very, very serious claim. Something serious happened there. And you cannot merely dismiss it, and it certainly can't, can't, it, it cannot have been a conspiracy theory, because conspiracies fall apart when the pressure of the world starts to come down on top of your head, because I was there. I was in the middle of the worst conspiracy of my political age, and we all fell apart. These men, they didn't only fall apart, they all died. And they didn't, if they really want to just say to Jesus, well, we, 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 we just stole his body, and now we want to go make this claim, do you understand how completely offensive that it would be to all Jews to say that a man is God? How completely mocked you would be by Romans to make that kind of claim? And that's exactly what they, they incurred, incredible cost to make that claim, and they all died for it. Let me give you one more argument before I go to part two of my message. About, about the history of the Bible. So this is from C.S. Lewis. And um, Lewis, in, in multiple places in his writings, he, he goes around and he says, as in, in, you should understand, Lewis is a brilliant literary scholar. 
Lewis is an expert on medieval liter English literature, and he's, he had studied myths and legends. In fact, that's exactly what he loved. <laughs> Ever since he was a boy, the thing he loved was myths, legends, and fables. Fables. He'd read all of them. He had studied them. He was an absolute expert upon them. And he was also an atheist. So before he became a Christian, he had all the training and the absolute expertise to be able to look into the Bible and tell you if he sees myths. And he had every reason to conclude, because he's an atheist who hates the stuff about God and Christianity, to be able to conclude it's nonsense. He wants to believe it's myths. He wants to believe it's lies, but when he would read it, he would say, this isn't myth. If it's myth, it's singularly weird, <laughs> because no other myths I've ever read are like this. And because there's all these odd stories, and there's all these strange details. And there's details that don't belong in any myth, because if you read an actual myth, it's usually about some heroic figure who did something and had to go up against some witch, or go up against some demon, or had to go up against some great enemy. And the point of the myth is to rise and show you this great hero, and to show you how he has a certain character, and to follow his moral example. And so you don't need to know how he combed his hair or if he ate this thing. or you, know, you don't need to know these odd little details. You don't need to know that he put his head down on a pillow. Of, it was a rock, which is exactly like a detail that Genesis tells us about Jacob. One day he was so poor he put his head down on a pillow, which is a rock. You don't need to know those type of details. Why? Because they're just unnecessary in a myth. Why are all these details in the Bible? Because, well, they claim that it happened. And so that puts you, as a real reader, if you're an intelligent and fair reader, you have to sit there and go, did this really happen or did not really happen? The Bible is telling you history, not just morality. It's incredibly important. Let me go to part two. Um, part two, the overall goal of the Bible is covenant relationship. This is tremendously important. Um, if you go to most of the other religions of the world, what they have is some type of like, they have maybe a story, which is, can be mythical, which probably is a mythical myth or a legend. And then they have some kind of character or rules about how you should be. In other words, they have morality. So myth and morality, they go together. <laughs> and so they'll tell you a story. And if you follow this example, or if you, this is the right, these are all the right. And you, human beings deeply want to know what is right and what's wrong. And we long to hear stories of a great hero because reading that, it, 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 it motivates us, it fills our hearts, we want to follow after this person. I mean, just watch movies today. We're not even talking about religion. You can watch, um, you can watch some movie about, uh, about someone who is like today, the, the, the common movies are there, there's someone who's like oppressing black people because that's our history. And then you have an example of a great you know, righteous figure that fights against that injustice. And then when we watch that, of course, you know, you, you, after you finish watching the movie, you've gotten a story. We're not quite sure if all of that story was true. But the point of the movie, it doesn't exactly quite matter if every piece in the story was true, is that you are now filled with, this is how to live. This is how you should live. But 
most of the religions of the world are about how what you are supposed to do and how you can behave and how maybe we can tell you some type of an inspiring, motivating story so you can live this way. It's really about people trying to reach up to the greatest treasures or reach up to justice or reach up and reach God and heaven. It's primarily that, but that isn't what the Bible is at all. The fundamental core of the Bible is that God is coming down and he's reaching us. He's reaching out and he's not just saying, follow my rules and be a certain way. That isn't actually, a lot of people have this idea that the Bible is filled with morality and they don't like our morality, especially about like sex or about money. And, these, and so they get offended by all these things and they don't like that. You're only supposed to worship Jesus. Well, that's a rule. You're not supposed to have sex a certain way. Those are rules. And you should give away your money more than that. Like, those are rules. And people think that that's what the Bible's filled with. That's not the central core thing of the Bible. Well, the central core of the Bible is that God is pursuing a covenant relationship. Now, we have this word relationship. And relationship means you know somebody and somehow you have some kind of connection to them. But... Um, so let me, let me put it to you this way. So you, you know, you're a guy, and you meet a girl, and you kind of like her. And then you go on a couple dates, and then we now have a relationship, right? That, that's not what the Bible, that's not what I mean. That's not what the, that kind of relationship God is interested in. God isn't trying to be our boyfriend. Maybe we can come and go. Maybe this relationship, it, it might work out. That's not the kind of relationship God is offering. He's offering a covenant relationship. And what that means, it's binding. And what that means is he's saying, will you enter into a relationship with me? And we'll have a deep, deep personal knowing of each other, and we will give each other our deepest hearts. And if we fail it, it's binding on both of us. If we fail it, we will curse, curse upon us. That's the relationship that is being offered in the Bible. That's how deep it is. That's why marriage is something, I mean, I don't even know if we can understand covenant in marriage today because that's not even how the way, we, we treat marriage as sort of like a more intense form of like the boyfriend-girlfriend. I could throw away my girlfriend, but now that we're married today, you know, like it was a, it's a little bit harder because there's some legal hoops, but like that's not covenant. What the Bible is offering is that God says, I'm a mighty God. See, think about it. If you're almighty, you know what you can do? Let's say you have a relationship with, you know, stick figures and you're almighty over your stick figures. I care about you. You care about me. As soon as the stick figure, you get bored of it. You know what you can do to the stick figure? Throw it away. Isn't that what we did with our toys? You know, you, you play with toys. Or you could do this with your dog or to your cat. You like your dog or your cat. But as soon as your dog or your cat does something you don't like, you can kick the dog. Boom. You can get rid of the cat. That is a relationship where you have all the power. That's a relationship. But it's not really a real relationship that goes together like this, isn't it? It's one where one has all the power and can just throw the other person away. And a lot of people think that that's kind of the way, that, that that's what we're, that we have with God. God holds all the cards and we show up. And then he can just kind of like bully us and just push us around. Well, because he has all the power. That is not the kind of relationship God offers. God says, I make promises to you. I make commitments to you. I will never abandon you. I'll always be there for you. And when I make a word and a promise to you, you can trust it. 
And if I break them, if I abandon you, if I break them, I will incur a curse on me. That's what's important in the Bible. What's important in the Bible is not that only human beings will incur a curse if they break the covenant with God, the deep relationship with God. What's important is that God will incur a curse if he breaks a relationship with us. And so if you read throughout the Bible, if you, most of the Bible is a story of a relationship with God. He chooses a people, a very important figure, a guy named Abraham, and then it's his children, and then the redemption that flows out of Israel, which ultimately culminates in Jesus. It's about God's relationship with them. And then if you read the Bible, see, it's nothing like myths, <laughs> And morality, it's strange, the thing that the Bible tells. So the, if you read about the, the figures in the Bible, they're not these perfect heroes. There's another way you can know that it's about history, because it's about a relationship that actually has happened and is actually going on and it's actually being offered to us. That's what's important. So if you read the, Abraham, one of the most important figures in the Bible and, of course, in all of history, because that's the figure whose children that God would say, you will be my people, and I will marry you into a covenant. I will always be there for you. So then, but if you read, if you read about Abraham, what you, what you get is an odd thing. You'll have, you'll have a heroic Abraham in one chapter, and then you'll have a really idiotic Abraham in, in the next chapter. Then you'll have the godly Abraham in the next chapter, then you'll have really stupid, sinful Abraham in the next chapter. Why? Because God offers to love real people. Real people in their brokenness. And actually you'll see that Abraham often fails the relationship, but the real hero of the story is not even Abraham. It's God who will make the covenant work, even when his people fail. That's Abraham. You get to Moses. You know, the, the, Moses was the greatest leader in all of history. But if you read the opening chapters of Exodus, Moses is straight up cowardly. Moses doesn't want the job. Moses doesn't want to do what God said he'd do. He's just like, go to somebody else. And God's like, no. He has all these crazy excuses. And so David, David is the greatest king of all of Israel. But actually, you know what? In, right in the middle of his life, he fails. David is the greatest king of Israel. He's an adulterer and he's a murderer. And God punishes him. God calls him to repentance. Why? Because this is what a real relationship looks like. It's history. Can't you see? And what the Bible is offering you is the relationship. I'm the God who loves Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the idiot who lied and broke his relationship with his, his brother and his mother and his father. So he was desperately poor. And so he had to put his head on a pillow, which was a rock. That happened, and that's the guy who I will name my people after. Jacob becomes Israel. And that is what is being offered throughout the Bible, again and again and again. And so it isn't these great heroes. In fact, that's another way you can know that the Bible is historically true because all the people are so utterly real. Peter, a liar. You can, you, can, you can almost feel his obnoxious arrogance in some parts of, a, of the Gospels, right? You can feel it, how, how he's too outspoken and too impetuous. And, you can, and, and the story about him, how he betrays Jesus right there in the Scriptures. And if you read throughout 
Jesus' ministry in the Gospels, the disciples again and again act like petty idiots. <laughs> and Jesus is constantly rebuking them. Their failures are there, but what's really there is God's persistence to love them, forgive them. So much of the Old Testament, actually, in fact, all throughout the Bible, is a whole catalog of human failure. <laughs> it's a whole catalog of people being people, sinful, prideful, wicked. There's rape, there's murder, there's war. Everything that is life. But it's God who is saying, but the real hero is God who's saying, I will fulfill this covenant and I will reach you. And this takes us to the last and third portion of, my, of, of, of the passage. I want you to go to um, this passage 2 Peter chapter 1. In 2 Peter 1, he said this, verse 19. He says, I was there as an eyewitness. I was there when I heard the voice say, this is my beloved son. But then listen to what he says. This is really astounding. We have something more sure. It's even more certain than actually having been there. The prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention to, the word which is from God, from the scriptures. That's what you have. It's even more certain than having been there. And you know why Peter can say this? Because he knows there are guys who saw Jesus raise the dead. Because I saw, like, Judas was there. He watched every miracle, but he fell away from Jesus. There are other people, they were there. Jesus fed 5,000. They were there, but they don't follow Jesus. So having been an eyewitness is not the most important thing. But if you receive the word, and if you receive this word, what does it do to you? If you pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart and you know that it wasn't just a, a series of interpretations. That's the word. Oh, you just have to have your interpretation. The Bible, straight up, that's, that's, the, that's the buzzword in today's postmodern culture. You have your interpretation. I have my interpretation. Peter says, no. We don't just have mere interpretations. We have a word from God himself. The Holy Spirit came and gave and carried men along to give us a word. And this is the word that we give to you. And that word ultimately is about this. This is how, how, the, how the light shines and the morning star arises, not just in history, but in your heart. When you pay attention to this word of God, and how does the light come on, the lamp come on into the darkness? Two weeks ago, I gave you a message saying the dark, we actually like the dark. Inside, we want to just trust in our own intuitions and our own wisdom and the lies of our own culture. We want to listen to the Dan Brown lies. Because then we get to just be in control and then like I don't have to follow anything that the Bible says and then I'll just be Lord of my own life. We want to be in that darkness. But how can it begin to light inside in your heart? Because as the Bible comes, there is the ultimate culmination of all the Bible and that's the gospel. And the gospel is coming to this just like David, just like Abraham, just like obnoxious lying Peter, just like the adulterer King David, the cowardly Moses. 
all these figures, God came here for you. And all these people, there was a, there was a, a, a relationship. This would be a deep binding relationship. And if you're inside this relationship and it's fulfilled, we will know God and be loved by him and have all his blessings and all his perfect love and justice forever and ever. But if we fail it, we'll incur curse. Well, every single person that's ever come failed it. But did, what did God do? He sent his son Jesus to say, you know what? You're always failing it. But I will come and complete it. I will fulfill this relationship. And so if you come and meet this person, this figure, Jesus, yes, he's a good teacher. Yes, he's a good moral example. But Lewis said that if Jesus is just a good moral example, then you haven't read the Bible because Jesus cannot merely be a good moral example. He's either a liar, he's a complete lunatic, or he must be this Lord. And the Lord came to fulfill the covenant that we failed He took the curse upon himself that we deserve. And he allowed himself to be broken so that all these broken, terrible people, called people, can be invited into this covenant that can never be broken and that will never fail. And he'll be with us, all races, all nations, men, women, rich, poor, all kinds of failures like you and me. That's what the Bible proclaims. When you hear that message and you see that person, and you can begin to know it's like no other message. And you can begin, the God who's offering us that message, the God who made this happen, he didn't say, here's a morality, follow it. He came to live the life we should have lived. He came to complete the morality, in fact, more than complete it. He came to die the death we deserve to die so that he can offer us the redemption that he did, he accomplished it. And that when we believe it, the Holy Spirit will apply it into our hearts and to our life. And that's when the morning star arises. And you know that this word is true. It's not just a word from man, from conspiracy or ideology or myth or morality. It's from God calling you to himself, to know him, be loved by him. So if you're hearing this message today, and you've never known Jesus this way, or you're not sure about the Bible, hmm, telling you this, this is the pathway. And this is how, why it's so important that it's history. It happened in the past, the God who loved and redeemed David and Moses and all these other supposedly great people, but were also great failures. He offers that redemption to you. And this is how we know it's God's word. Let's pray. I pray, Father, that all who are listening to this message can begin to wrestle, especially those who may have doubts, who may have skepticism, and whatever the version of their doubts, I pray that you would use some of these words, you're all so ever so wise, and you directed history, and your word goes forth, and your spirit makes the word come to life, come to light. And I pray, Lord, they would see the gospel. They would see the God that the gospel proclaims, that the Bible heralds. 
And we pray, Lord, that a deep conviction, a deep persuasion to be utterly, truly convinced comes not because I'm so smart and I can figure it out, but because your spirit washes over us and begins to see it's rational. There's filled with evidence. There's power. There's truth. There's a beautiful and glorious God calling me to himself. And I pray, Lord, that as people hear this and as they, that people would go and dig into the Bible. Is that what the Bible has? And they would seek you. They would search for you. And by your spirit and by the power of your word, they'll be found by you. They'd be loved by you. And they'd give themselves to you. In Jesus' name.